All right. Hey, everyone. Good morning again. Welcome to the exchange. Uh, do me a favor. You can turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, and if you need a Bible, we can do that right now. Why don't you raise your hand? We'll get you a Bible. Nehemiah chapter 2. I do want to just remind you, we do have journals in the back. Since this is only the second week of Nehemiah, if you would like to grab a journal, they're in the back. Uh, we just love for you to take notes and be a part of this with us. Nehemiah 2. I do, I do want to say again, happy Father's Day. Um, this is a, a special Father's Day for me. It's my first time with my baby girl, so it's very exciting to have two now. Um, but, <laughs> but I just want to say happy Father's Day um, to all the men in the room. We just want to say we want to honor you. We need more men who love Jesus, who want to walk with Jesus, who want to raise their families after Jesus. Um, this is something we do just want to honor all the guys in the room. Uh, I know that this is kind of a weird day for many people. Um, this is my 11th Father's Day being here and not spending it with my dad and back home. Uh, so I know that it can be like a difficult day for some people, whether you're, maybe your father's passed away, uh, maybe you're not talking or in communication with your father. This can be a difficult day for many people. And uh, this is a reminder to me that I'm very thankful for all the spiritual fathers as well that God has placed in our lives. And I'm just thankful for a heavenly father. And if you didn't have a great uh, example at home of what a good father looks like, uh, that's why we look to the word. And that's why we look to our one true father who loves us unconditionally and is very patient with us. Um, I found, I came across a quote this week. I was reading an article, and here's a prayer of a pastor for, for his people, and I just want to read this. He says, may we fathers be faithful moment by moment to pursue our high calling by God's grace and for his glory and for the eternal happiness of our children. That is like a prayer. We want to just pray over our dads. And so um, for all the guys in general, future dads, um, we just want to pray over you guys. I'm going to ask Mike uh, Denker to come up here. He's one of our group leaders and just one of our leaders here. And he's gonna ask, I'm going to ask him just to pray over all the men in the room. So give it for Mike as he comes up here. <laughs> Father God, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come into your throne room of grace together and all in different places. But God, I lift up every man in this room right now, whether he's a father, whether he's going to be a father, whether he has father by blood or he's a father to, to many the fatherless. Father, we have so many opportunities to breathe life into the young and, and into the old around us. And Father, I pray against anything that the devil is doing against the fathers in this room, against the men in this room. I pray that through Jesus Christ, the devil has no claim on anybody in this room. I pray that that our faith, and for those that don't believe, our faith would overcome whatever the enemy is trying to accomplish. Father, I pray that his evil darts would be quenched, that his plans would be frustrated, and that we would stand firm and stand strong. And Father, for every man and every woman that struggles with Father's Day, Father, I pray for reconciliation with you, because for every human, we fall short, and you fill in the gaps. And so, Father, some gaps are greater for others. And so I just pray that those gaps would be filled and we would all be reconciled to you today, Father, on your day, Father's Day. And Father, I pray that if there's anything from the past that needs to be let go, I pray it would be undone and set free and that we would hold on to the good from our earthly fathers and let go of the bad so that the next generation is better than the last generation through all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. All right. Hey, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, if you're still turning there, I think it's page 226, I think, in the Bibles we passed out. It's before the book of Psalms. Um, let me just kind of catch up to speed. So we just started Nehemiah last week. Uh, we're looking at this series. It's just called, called Holy Ambition. 
when a good desire meets a greater God. And uh, we talked about this, but I do want to catch you up. I think ambition has gotten a bad rap. I think that we have seen ambition used selfishly. I think we've seen, even the scriptures talk about being aware of selfish ambition. And we see that selfish ambition has really torn apart families. It's caused a lot of pain, wars. It's made people do some terrible things for greed. Selfish ambition has been destructive. But I do think at the same time, we've kind of now gone to an extreme where we look at anything that might be ambitious and say, that, that, that's not good. So here's what we see. We see in the scriptures a holy ambition. We see in the scriptures men and women who had holy ambition for God. It's David saying, let's expand the borders. It's Solomon saying, we need to build God a temple. It's Nehemiah desiring to rebuild the city. It's Paul saying, I'm ambitious for the gospel to be proclaimed to all. There's also a holy ambition. And I think my hope in this series is that we would kind of reclaim that, that God would give within us a desire for holy ambition to take risks for God. I think that some people in this room, I think God's trying to push you and saying you need to step out. Like you're going to take a risk for me. You're going to do something for the kingdom. You're going to make a sacrifice. You're going you're to do something. I think God's calling all of us to do that to some extent. I would love to see the church become, again, a risk-taking church that says we're going to try things, we're going to pray, we're going to seek God, we're going to plan, just like Nehemiah did. He's very organized, he's very planned, he's very strategic, uh, but I also see now, now let's move, let's act on that. And so I'm, I'm hoping that God does do something. I don't want to just go through, like, another book of the Bible and, and not necessarily know what is the heart behind this. And I really do believe God is calling us to do things that will be difficult, that will be hard. He's calling you to do things that will be difficult and be hard. And so I want to look at Nehemiah from this sense of holy ambition. How do we take risks again for God's kingdom? How do we have a desire to build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? And that is our desire as we walk through this book. So um, let me just kind of, again, catch up to speed in case you're like, because you missed chapter one, it's like the intro and it kind of explained everything. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He's basically a government worker. He's at the king's right hand almost all the time. And so Nehemiah has some friends come back from Jerusalem, chapter one, and he goes, tell me what's going on. What's the word? And there's three things they said. They said there's a remnant, the city's in ruins, uh, and they said that God's name is basically a reproach. Remnant, ruins, reproach. So Nehemiah hears this. He goes, there's only you know, a certain amount of Jews. The city's fallen apart. It's broken. And God's name is like a mockery to the people there. Look what your God did. Look how, look how if your God's so great, why is your city in ruins? And so Nehemiah is heartbroken by this. And it's important for us to understand the context. So I'm going I'm to do that nerdy, you know, history, historical side that we did last week. That's so important for us because when we, when we can understand his context, it helps us understand our context today. So really quick, just, just so you can kind of see the timeline of what's going on. Uh, the city of Jerusalem, if you remember, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Babylonians took over. Jeremiah warned them, repent, repent. If you don't, we're going to go into exile. We're going to become slaves. And that's what happens. They go to Babylon. They're slaves there. Uh, we see Daniel living in Babylon during that time. Then, and after that, God prophesied. You can read this in the book of Isaiah, many other places. God says, I'm going to raise up a man named Cyrus, and he's going to be my servant. And so Cyrus comes on, and he's the Persian king, and he overtakes Babylon. And Cyrus is the guy that says, hey, Jews, go back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild your temple. So there's this first wave. Do you see the timeline? Because I can't see it. Is it up there? Give me a head. Good. There's a first wave of Jews who returned under Zerubbabel in 538 BC. Everyone says Zerubbabel. It's so fun. Zerubbabel. All right. Good job. Yeah. Um, so the first wave of Jews returned then. Then there's Darius, who's the next king. This is when the temple was rebuilt during his lifetime. You can find this all in the book of Ezra, and this is just history. Uh, then after Darius, you have the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. Uh, this is the king um, who married Esther. 
And so this is Artaxerxes' dad. You can read about that story in the book of Esther. I'd, I'd recommend that. It's awesome. So you see how Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah kind of all coexist together. Nehemiah was actually called Second Ezra at one point in time, and then just became Nehemiah. Uh, but keep going. Then you have Artaxerxes. He's allowing the second wave of Jews to go back with Ezra to, in a sense, many, many years later after Zerubbabel, to say, now let's bring some sort of spiritual reform. So there's a second wave of Jews that go back. And there's a little bit of a revival, but it doesn't last very long. So here comes Nehemiah. Nehemiah is talking to his buddies who came back. And he's like, Ezra's there in Jerusalem. Like, what's going on? And they're like, it's still in ruins. And God's name is a reproach. And it's not going well. And we remember Ezra's heart is just broken by this. He weeps. He fasts for days. He just prays. He's calling upon God. And we're going to see here in chapter 2, uh, Nehemiah take this giant step of faith, literally risk his life, make some pretty big requests, and we're going to see Nehemiah comes with a plan. And the reason why, again, we're going through this is we're going, God, I ask that you'd pour out vision upon our church. I ask that we would actually be those who take risks, that we pray, we seek you, that we'd actually be broken for the things happening in our community, even though we might not see always outward brokenness. We can look internally and just see families or people or individuals falling apart, just heartbreak and ruin and that God would just serve some of our hearts. So I'm very excited just to walk through this, because we see a guy who just sold out to the call of God, that he's willing to risk it all to leave a palace to live in ruins. And so let's just read Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. We'll read that as a whole. Uh, that's our text today, and then we'll pray. Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, remember, he just finished praying. He's like, God, give me favor before this man. And then chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass... In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, uh, Why is your face sad, since you, are not, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city... When the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him. The king asked, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I uh, sent him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they may, must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, uh, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, and when Sambalat and uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. There is a lot there, but here's what we see, and we're going to look at simply. The title today is The King's Favor the king's favor. And I just want to look and walk through what that looks like and how Nehemiah approached him, the tact and the honesty as well as he approached him. So let's pray and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we just, um, again, we thank you that we can study your word. We can look to you. It is living and active. 
Uh, God, I just ask that you would take your word and just do something to our lives, to our hearts. That Jesus, you'd guide us by your word, to lead us by your word. That we look at just those men and women before us who took giant steps of faith. And Jesus, I ask that we would just do the same. God, I ask that you would lead us, that you'd, you'd move our hearts, give us eyes to see things that we just maybe even don't see yet. And so, Lord, um, just be in this place in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. I was talking to my wife yesterday, and I asked her, um, I'm like, hey, I need some help with the intro to my sermon, and I know I want to talk about being nostalgic, but I just kind of need some help. And she said to me, I quote, are you kidding me? You're the most nostalgic person I ever met. You're like a grandpa. You literally go home to California and drive by your house, even though your parents don't live there anymore. And that is true. And I'm like, hey, it's on the way, you know, like, but she's, she's very right. When I was thinking about this idea of nostalgic or nostalgia, the idea to me of just kind of looking back fondly, maybe on the past, like reminiscing with a group of friends. I'm still, for some reason, very old school. Like when, I, when we spend money on groceries, I'm like, how does it cost this much? I'm like only 30. And I'm like, how does this food cost? When I was a kid, she's like, when you're a kid, um, you know, I still talk about, man, they, I could get three tacos for a dollar. Like that is unheard of these days. Like what happened? Um, but I'm very nostalgic. And I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to bring some of your friends back to your hometown or like show them around your old stomping grounds. That is a very fun experience. A few years ago, I had some friends from Florida come with me to California. I got to take them to like all my old spots and I was so excited. Like I'm taking them to In-N-Out Burger, to the beach, this like cliffside I used to hang out at. Uh, I was taking them to like retreat centers where I kind of grew up going to as a kid. And like I was, I'm like, isn't this amazing? They're like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Like, hold on. Like, this is heaven on earth. Like, isn't this incredible? It's like, yeah, yeah, like, it's, it's cool. I'm like, no, that, that burger is the best thing you ever had, right? Like, they're like, no. And it was so difficult for me to be like, no, no, you don't see the significance of how incredible this is. Like, enjoy it more. And, and sometimes it's hard to kind of, you know, share that with others. And, and here's why I say that. Um, it's very difficult to relate with people if you don't understand the significance of their upbringing. If you don't understand the significance of some of their life experiences, it's, it's difficult to kind of like join in with them. Here's why I'm saying this. For example, Jerusalem. So for us, Jerusalem, we hear that like, oh yeah, it's a pretty cool city, I guess. Um, Jerusalem for them was everything. Jerusalem was like the place. You say, I want to understand when Jerusalem's in ruins, I don't know if we really get the heartbreak. I don't know if we really get how important this was to Nehemiah. I don't know if you understand what it did to his heart and his peers' hearts. You see, so just, let's kind of back up a little bit. So the temple and just Jerusalem destroyed 586 BC. But before that, like in 950 BC, Solomon builds the temple. And there's some new just kind of rhythms of life built around the temple. If you guys know, every just practicing Jew at the time would go to Jerusalem three times a year for at least a week. Three times a year for the uh, for, um Passover, for the Feast of Booths, for the Feast of Pentecost, three times a year, they would literally go to Jerusalem on vacation, essentially. And I want you to think about this. They wouldn't just go to Jerusalem, but they'd had a different meal, different plan, like different diet, different things they would eat. They'd go there sometimes in spring or winter, depending on the, the feasts. They were going there different seasons, different times of years, a forced family vacation. Grandparents, cousins, aunts, they would travel in these caravans. It was such a vacation experience, religious experience. This was a time where three times a year, men would present themselves to the priests and offer sin for the family. Jerusalem is literally the only place you could offer sin offering. If you're a Jew, you could offer offerings to God, like praise offerings, but you could never offer sin offering other than Jerusalem. I mean, it's a very significant place. Jerusalem's a place where God says that the king needs to rule from this place. The city of David that like is on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, you can still go to the city of David. He's like, this is where king shall rule from, from this city. 
In 1 Chronicles, here's a verse, uh, 2 Chronicles 6, 6, God said this, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name should be there. God is like, my name is on this city. God calls out Jerusalem as a place of significance and importance. I mean, we don't really understand how much this meant to them. We, we talked about this at Easter, if you were here with us, but in Genesis 22, God called Abraham before his ever Jerusalem and said, go to the land of Moriah, the hills of Moriah, and there on one of the mountains of which I will show you, offer your son. And that is literally the, the mountain, the hill, where essentially the temple was built. My point is there's so much rich history there. It meant so much to the people. God's name is on that city. This is where we'd family vacation three times a year. This is where I think back to being with my grandma and grandpa and cut. Like, this meant so much to me, and it's in ruins. You see, I think we kind of feel it. If you go back home and something's not the same or they change something, you're like, oh, it's not the same anymore. But, I mean, this, this Jerusalem, means so much more. It's not even comparable, and it's in ruins. And I, I'm bringing this up because I don't know if we really feel or understand the brokenness Nehemiah felt. I mean, this is to an extreme. This is the city of God. This is the place where God's name would be made great. This is the place where Gentiles, non-Jews, should say, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to know your God. And it's in ruins. And so I want us to understand the context of Nehemiah and the ask and the request he asks is not some small ask. And we'll see that in a second. So as we walk through this text, and as we look at the king's response to Nehemiah, here's how we're going to look at this, and really here's what we see in this text. First of all, uh, we see the king's permission to go, the king's permission. Then we're going to see the king's provision, how the king provides, which is unbelievable. He doesn't just give him permission. And then we're going to see the king's protection, how he's going to send an army with Nehemiah. I mean, this is a request granted to a, an unbelievable extreme. So the king's permission, the king's provision, the king's protection. Let's, again, look at this text so we can really understand. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Read verse 1 with me. Just look down really quick. First verse, it says this. It came to pass in the month of Nisan. Let's stop there. Um, just so you get this. In chapter 1, if you remember, there was in the month of Kislev. We know according to this calendar, it's about four months later. Four months later now, Nehemiah is approaching the king. So I do want us to understand that Nehemiah, as we talked about last week, did not react. He's in prayer. He actually, for four months, kept a pretty strong look and face. He did not show this sad demeanor until four months later. And this is so key. Know that he's waiting for God's perfect timing. Something I struggle with, we struggle with, and I want to say this, is we should not mistake God's patience for his absence. I think what we can do is God is an extremely patient God. And in our minds, we go, man, God must be so busy. Like, I know China's like booming right now. He's probably busy working in China. It's like, no, don't mistake God's patience for his absence. There's something that God is moving. God is active. We might not see it. Nehemiah, it really does, let me say this, it takes faith to wait. If we can understand this, it takes faith to wait. This is so key. There's brokenness, there's, there's terror, they're being pillaged, you could say, daily in the city, and then Nehemiah's waiting, and he's waiting for that perfect time. And this is something that Hebrews even comments on, on this thought. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, we'll throw the verse up. It says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Do we hear that? He's be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. 
This is so difficult for us. I am not the best, um, I'm not the most patient human. I don't know if you are just naturally patient. I haven't really met too many people like that. Um, it's usually we want to be very active. There's a lot of verses that speak into this and I think kind of guide and shepherd my heart in this. And I'm going to throw these verses up here for you just to hear this and read this. Maybe this is for you today. Exodus 14 says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Ruth chapter three says, sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. Psalm 4610, a verse you might know, be still and know that I am God. Stand still, sit still, be still. And I want to point this out. For four months, though, Nehemiah is also working. So during the waiting period, we work. We work while we wait. We, we wait on the Lord. Doesn't mean we just sit there and wait on the, the Lord, like on the couch, like eating chips, waiting on the Lord. Like we actually are proactive in waiting. He's still serving the king. He's still acting. He didn't like stop his job but he is waiting for that time. That is so key. And I don't know if you need to hear that, but please work while you wait. You might be waiting on something for God to do in your life. Like, I want to be married by now. I want to have this by now. I want to go here. And God just like, while you're waiting, work on, like, wait on me, serve me, uh, work during this time. You might be waiting, but you can still work during this time. So four months later, let's keep reading verse one. It says, in the 12th year, of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, uh, why is your face sad since you are not sick? There is nothing but sorrow of heart. So, so I became dreadfully afraid. So again, remember, Nehemiah's job is he's the cupbearer. Uh, this is a pretty great job and pretty risky job. I mean, as a cupbearer, you get to taste the best wine like in the world. They're not going to give like the worst wine. He gets to taste the best wine in the world all the time, but every taste could be his last taste. So, you know, there's a risk factor there, but he gets the, the chance to serve the king, be around the king. This is great. Like I could die. I don't know. A weird kind of job. And if you're the king, you're going to pay really close attention to Nehemiah. He's like, you look sick, but I don't think you're sick. What's up? Because again, if he's sick, that means I could be sick and die. Like, so what's going on? I don't think yet you're physically sick, but you're, you're sor- sorrow of heart. Now, just so you know, uh, no one, and this is just even common, you can read this in Esther, you can read this in history, no one was to be in the presence of the king with a sad face. No one was to have a sad countenance. I don't know if it's because the king's full of himself in the sense of like, if you're near me, you better be happy because I'm a pretty great human. Like, I don't know if it's like what it is, but you're not allowed to be around a king with a sad countenance. You cannot come in that way. And so he goes, what's going on? So this is risky for Nehemiah even showing it. And so even in verse three, when he, or verse two, and he says, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? There's nothing but sorrow of heart. And he says, I became dreadfully afraid. Dreadfully afraid. And I love that we see like the humanity of Nehemiah. Because sometimes we can look at Bible characters and be like, oh my gosh, they're flawless. Like they're far from it. I'm very thankful that Nehemiah goes, I'm overwhelmed with fear right now. Either one, because I could lose my life. Two, I'm about to make the biggest request known to like man. But he becomes dreadfully afraid. But here's the thing. In his fear, he still acts. In his fear, he still moves. He did not become overwhelmed by that fear and do nothing. He still moves forward. But the king is like, what is going on? Why are you sad? Verse three, Nehemiah's response. And he said to the king, may the king live forever. Good response. Uh, Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my fathers, the tombs lies waste and its gates burned with fire. So he says, may the king live forever. Listen, this is tact. Um, I think we as Christians could use some tact. I don't think he's just blowing smoke. I think that Nehemiah, honestly, is a very loyal guy, very respectful guy. We see Paul do this in the book of Acts. He's like, oh, most excellent uh, Theophilus. Like the way he just talked, or King Agrippa, he talked very respectfully. So he's literally saying, may the king live forever. 
And then he does this, which is notice the tact. He asks the king a question. Why should I not be afraid? You know what he could have done? He could have been like, just gone off. Like, wonder why I'm sad? Well, you enslaved me and my people for the last like 100 years. Like, he could have freaked out. But he just goes, you know what, king, why should I not be? So he asks him a question. He doesn't make it this political movement. He makes it a personal thing. The tombs of my fathers just lay there. He makes it very personal. And again, this is very risky. You're talking to the person who's the king, who had a word, could be just off with his head. He's enslaving your people. But I want us to see the tact in it. I want us to see his approach in it. Do you know that when Esther approached her own husband, Artaxerxes' dad, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, when she approached him, in Ezra chapter 7, listen to what she said. She says to her husband, to the king, who's a Jew, remember Esther's a Jew, she says, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, uh, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. I want you to see how even she approaches him. She approaches them the same way Nehemiah does. May the king live forever. And she's like, oh my majesty, to her husband. This is just one of those things where you see, I need favor. I'm going to show respect and tact in the moment. And then basically, here's what he's saying. I'd rather be in the rubble. I'd rather be in the ruins than in the palace. Even though I'm in a palace, my heart is in the ruins right now. My heart is with the tombs of my fathers right now. And he just comes across a very humble approach, and that goes over very well. Remember how the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath? Um, I think a lot of us get really good at this as Christians, like just having a soft response to people. So the king hears this. What does he say? Verse 4. Keep reading. Verse 4. What does he go on to say? Because it's so good. He says, the king said to me, what do you request? Listen to verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, uh, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, and the queen is also sitting by him, we'll talk about that, uh, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So he has the king's permission. The king's like, you can go. But notice this. The king goes, what do you want? What do you request? And I love verse 4 when it says, so I, I prayed. You catch that? The king said to me, what do you request? He goes, so I just prayed to the God of heaven. We don't have the prayer. It's not some long prayer like last week. It's a very long, thorough prayer. I think it's one of those prayers you do where you go, oh God, help me. Like, dear God, I need help now. Like, it's probably one of those quick prayers. I'm thankful that Nehemiah, just, we're going to see 12 prayers in this book. He's a man of prayer. He has long prayers. He has short prayers. By the way, if you know, you're married, you, you understand this. There are times you have long, thorough conversations with your spouse. You're talking about their life, their dreams, their visions, what they want to do, just their hope, how they're feeling, what they're going through. Then there's times you just check in and have little like conversations. Like, you good? Yeah, okay, bye. And this is Nehemiah. Prayer, you guys, is not necessarily just like this, um, it's not this stop and go thing. It's just this ongoing conversation with God. It might be long, it might be short. Nehemiah goes, God help me. Hey, king. And he has a request. And he answers the request. And I want us to see his request. He goes, I want to go back to Judah. Notice he doesn't say Jerusalem. Because that, that name, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was known for having stubborn people. That's literally the reputation throughout the Bible is there's stubborn people there. They're going to rebel against the king there. So he goes, I just want to go back to Judah. Again, he's just tactful, which also includes Jerusalem. I want to go back to the land of my fathers. Now, here's why this is such a big request. All right, so again, church history, Bible history. Let's talk through this. Here's what happened earlier. In the book of Ezra, chapter 4, 
There are some guys who did not like what was happening with Ezra and the people. And they literally write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Write this verse down. It's Ezra chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Reham, the commander of the Shimshai, great names, uh, the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. So there are some guys, they're writing a letter to King Artaxerxes saying, we don't like what's happening to the Jews in Jerusalem. This is during the time of Ezra, about 13 years earlier. This is maybe sometime in the middle of that. So five, seven years, maybe at this point in time, there's a letter going to King Artaxerxes saying, stop it. Stop what the Jews are doing in Jerusalem. We'll just read part of the letter. This was a handwritten letter in Aramaic to King Artaxerxes. Here's what it says in verse 12. This is what they say. They say, let it be known to the king, this king, that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem, and they're building the rebellious and evil city, and that's what they call Jerusalem, and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if the city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. This was a letter that was sent out during Ezra's days to King Artaxerxes, saying, they're going to rebel against you. Do not keep helping them in funding this. King Artaxerxes' response in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, says this. Now the king, this is what the king said, he wrote. Now give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given. This is what King Artaxerxes wrote. I want us to hear something. The king wrote a foreign policy saying, stop all building immediately. I heard your request. They're rebellious. No more. Here comes Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, <laughs> Nehemiah, you could say like the janitor of the palace. He goes, hey, king, I want to talk to you about your foreign policy and how it's really failing. Like, imagine this request. Imagine he's like, hey, listen, your foreign policy on just Judah and Jerusalem, you know what? I would love it if you could kind of go like on CNN and Fox News and tell everyone um, why your foreign policy is failing and just please just repent and change. Like, this is literally what he's basically asking the king. He's going, here's what's happening. Um, I'm going to ask that you, you send me back to rebuild the city's foundations, its walls, and its gates. He's asking the king to reverse his own policy. This is such a big request. I don't know if we get this. I don't know if I fully understand. He's putting his head out there to say, um, even if this leads to my death, I have to ask this question. And I want us to see something. I know we know this, but Nehemiah is leveraging his position with the king to further God's kingdom on earth. He's saying, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. I have the ear of the king. I'm at his side. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to speak into this. Just like Esther. When Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't go to the king, we're going to die. Somehow God's going to save us, but you can be used at this point. You need to step in. And you kind of see this like little fear and little faith in this conversation. Same thing with Nehemiah. He's going, I, I just have to stick my neck out there. And so it says the king's like, okay. He literally says, you can go. So next, Nehemiah kind of gets confidence and he goes, I have some more requests. All right. So we see the king's permission. All right. Nehemiah goes, how long will we be gone? And the answer is 12 years. He's gone for 12 years. And next, number two, we're going to see the king's provision in this. So let's look at verse seven. Verse seven, furthermore, I said to the king, like it almost sounds like I got more bold. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they, might, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. The king's provision. All right, look again at verse four when the king goes, what do you request? It is a great thing when a king asks you, tell me what you want. This literally takes my mind, obviously, back to when God appeared to Solomon 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, God appears to Solomon, and Solomon just became king. And I know you know this story, but in 2 Chronicles 1 verse 7, it says, God appeared to him, and he said, ask, what shall I give you? What is Solomon's request? I need knowledge and wisdom to lead this people. And God's like, because it wasn't a selfish request, because it's a noble request, I'll give you that. And Solomon goes down as one of the wisest men, or the wisest man really, who like ever lived. And here's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verse 5, this is what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, like Solomon, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you keep reading James, he even says, don't doubt when you ask. Let me say this. There's something, there's really, there's power in asking. I can't fully explain this, but when the Bible says, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask, and God will give it liberally and generously to you. I need to take that serious. What a wonderful promise from God. There's something about just asking. You know, we, we do see this in James continued. We see when asking maybe goes wrong, when you ask for something selfishly. James chapter 4, verse 2, you know this verse. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Listen, yet you do not have because you do not, say the word, you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask what? That you may spend it on your pleasures. It's interesting how James says, ask, ask God for wisdom, and he'll give it to you. Ask in faith, God will give it to you. And then he goes in later on and says, but you know what? If you ask for selfish things for your own personal gain, um, you're not going to receive it because you're asking to miss. You're not, you're not asking for something that's going to benefit the people. There's something about when you make an ask, I really do believe, that is in tune with God, in line with God, like Nehemiah. I'm asking that you send me. I'm asking that you provide everything in the process. There's something really unique about this. You know, remember in Luke chapter 11, Jesus talking to the disciples, and he says, listen, if a son asks his dad for bread, is the father going to give him a stone? If he asks for an egg, is the father going to give him a scorpion? And then in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says this, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who what? To those who ask. There's something about asking, and I don't fully get this. When you ask in line with God and God's will and God's ways, and it's not selfish, it's not for personal gain, and it's God, I want to join you in this. I know this is your heart. I need wisdom in this. I'm asking for wisdom and faith. There's power in asking. The king goes, what do you request? What is it you want? You see, Jeremiah, I think, knew something that maybe we forget. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says this. Listen, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Some of us need to be reminded of God's sovereignty in this. When we freak out about our king, <laughs> when we freak out about our overseers, we do need to remember the heart of the king is in, the God, in God's hand. It's like a river. God can turn it whichever way he wishes. You see this in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. You see this time and time again. When we think that the king has all authority and power, when in reality God has all authority and power, and he's like, ask the king, and I'm going to direct his heart. You know, Hudson Taylor, a great missionary who did some incredible things for God and his kingdom, he said something similar. He, he said this way, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. The only way to move men, the only way to move the heart of man, where we think there's no way this is going to happen, is going to be by prayer alone. I think there are some things right now that we believe are like out of sight or out of touch, and there's no way this will ever happen, and we forget that God controls the very men and women's hands in his heart. We think there's no way in a million years my boss will ever be like nice to me and hear me and change. And it's like God can easily change that. As, as Hudson Taylor said, the only way is by prayer and prayer alone. There's something about asking. The king says, what do you request? Now listen, do not miss your opportunity with this. You better be ready when the opportunity comes. 
See, some of us think that we're missing opportunity, and if we just had opportunity, we'd have success, when in reality, it's not that we need opportunity, we need a plan. We need a plan so when the opportunity comes, we are ready. I think this is so good. So let's talk about prayer and planning. Prayer and planning. Uh, if you're married, some of you might be the prayer person in your family. You know who you are, right? Uh, some of you might be the planner. You know who you are. Sometimes that might, like, not coexist very well. You're like, oh, no, they plan so much, they don't pray and see God. Like, they just pray and see God never plan. Like, that can cause, like, some, you know, issues. We can talk after service if you need to. Uh, but in reality, you go, that can be such a beautiful thing when they work hand in hand. Nehemiah is praying and he's planning. He's taking four months. Why? Do we notice how ready Nehemiah gets? Do we notice in verse six? I love this. Did you catch in verse six? It's like he asked in front of who? His wife. I think Nehemiah is really smart. It's like, what do you need? It's like, well, let me ask. And there's something like, why did he, it's funny, commentators talk about this, like, why did, why even add that verse? Why it say his wife was sitting next to him? Why even say that? Like, why put that in there? Other than probably Nehemiah knew when to ask, to say, let me ask him from his wife because there might be this, like, let me show how big of a man I am. Like, there might be that tendency, you know, or maybe it's his wife giving him the nudge. You guys want to talk about the nudge? I've gotten the nudge. Someone asks something, you're like, I don't want to do this. And your wife's like, and you're like, yeah, I'd love to do this. Like, that'd be great. Like, I just think that's smart. That's probably why he's very tactful in this. He comes very organized in this. If you catch, do you notice everything? He goes, we're going to need trees. We're going to need timber. He literally knows who's keeping that. He finds out who's the keeper of the timber. Oh, Asaph. Hey, can you get, write a letter to Asaph specifically? And then I love verse 8, and it's like, and for my house. Like, he's like, can you write it in my house right there? Like, literally, he has, and to build my house. Like, he goes, let's build the temple, the city, the walls, the gates, and just make sure you write in house in that little spot. Like, Nehemiah came so, so ready. And here's the point. We need to pray, but we need a plan. We have to plan. We have to be ready for when the time comes. There's a side of it where we're not, we don't just need an opportunity, we need the plan. So when the opportunity comes, we are ready. Amen? It is good to plan. People come to me and say, I've been praying about this. I'm like, awesome, what, what have you planned? That's your job. I'm like, no, come with a plan. We need to have a plan as well sometimes. We need to kind of go, I'm going to write this out, I'm going to think this through. Who, who's the keeper of this force? Who do I need letters to write to? I need this many letters to get me where I need to get to. And he's very smart and very intentional. Um, I, I just want to keep, keep thinking on this thought too. If he goes, hey, king, not just will you send me and give me permission, but will you fund it? He's saying reverse your foreign policy on Judah and then fund the rebuilding of it. Again, just the ask is unbelievable. There's a book that uh, I was reading this article that kind of popped up and I started reading about this book that came out. It's called Gospel Patrons. I'm like, let me read the summary of the book because I don't know if I'm get the book. But uh, Gospel Patrons was talking this, this idea simply of men and women who throughout just kind of like the church history have funded movements of the gospel. So we know George Whitfield, we, we know Hudson Taylor, we know these people who took great steps of faith for God, but we don't know the people behind who are like writing the check for that. We don't know the people who are saying, that is a work of the Spirit, I want to be a part of that. And literally, it's so beautiful when you do see the church joining this way, but it's, it's even cooler to me when you see like the enemy paying for furthering God's kingdom. We're like, hey, can the king who's like anti the Jewish God, can he actually pay the bill for this? See, I really don't ever think there's like an insufficient amount of funds, but maybe faith maybe boldness, maybe the risk takers. I really do believe God just provides in incredible ways. God has provided from some of the strangest ways for our church where people have just donated things. We're like, oh my gosh, we needed that this week. Thank you. Like, I don't think it's amount of like God doesn't have it, of course, as much as like, are we willing to step out? Are we willing to take the risk? And we see this, this move of God in this really significant way. And here is the key to me about God's provision. Can we look at verse eight again? The end of verse eight says what? How does it end? How does Nehemiah summarize verse 8? He says, according to the good hand of my God upon me. I want us to hear this. Nehemiah prayed. He planned. He's a great leader. People look at him as a great visionary, a great leader in so many ways. 
But does, does Nehemiah go, yes, and I did it. <laughs> and my, I am so smart and so tactful, and I'm a genius. He goes, and God's grace was on me. Nehemiah knows that Nehemiah is not the hero of the story. We need to understand, if you read Nehemiah for one moment, and you're kind of going, oh, I love this guy. I want to be like, he is not, the, we'll be tempted to think he's the hero. He's not the hero. God is the one stirring the king's heart. God is the one burdening Nehemiah. God is the one who built the forest. God is the one who gave him access to the forest. This is the work of God. This is all God. I, I, I so believe that we see God's like, I get the credit, I get the glory. I'm looking for people who are willing to be used. It is Mordecai to Esther. Even if you don't do this and say those hard things before the king, God's gonna raise someone else up. God's gonna get it done. And this is so challenging. God's gonna get it done. And I guess the question is, do you wanna be a part? God's gonna do something. Do we wanna join him? God's going to be, God's going to do, God's going to reach people, save people, feed people. God's going to do what God does. Do you want to be a part of that or not? And Nehemiah's like, I want to be a part of that. And, and let me just say this, I'm a part of it, but God's doing it. According to the good hand of God upon me. Let me say this, Nehemiah had the king's permission. Hey, you can go, I'm sending you. He had the king's provision. And now on top of all that, he has the king's protection. Look at verse nine. Then I, I went to the governor in the region beyond the river and gave him the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I know we will hear definitely more about Sanballat and Tobiah more later in the book of Nehemiah. We'll talk about them. But notice this. Nehemiah also gets a letter from the king to say, and give me the king's men. Give me the king's horsemen. Nehemiah is traveling to Jerusalem in fashion. He's traveling with an army with him. And this is why I love, if you've read Ezra, I had to obviously reread it recently just to get ready for this. And as I'm reading Ezra, there's a really interesting point. Ezra went back to Jerusalem 13 years earlier. Ezra's going into Jerusalem, and he literally said to the king, king, send us, God will take care of us. And then like Ezra has this internal battle and goes, should I have asked the king to send his army with me? No, I'm not going to ask the king because I said God will take care of us, so I'm not going to ask for the king's army because I want to prove. And so Ezra fasts and prays and gets his men to fast and pray for days before they make this travel from Susa to Jerusalem. They didn't go with an army. And here's Nehemiah go, and he's thrown an army too. Now here's why I like that. We see there's a difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. Sometimes there's people who go, I can't believe Nehemiah would ask for an army. It's so unspiritual, right? And then someone like, I can't believe Ezra didn't ask for an army. So unwise. Like, it's funny how the church kind of can do this with different topics. Like, that's so unwise to do that. It's so unspiritual. I, I love there's both examples. There's some are like, we're going to fast and pray. We're going to make sure God protects us. Some are like, hey, we're going to use wisdom and just ask for the kings, you know, army to go with us. It's kind of smart. You know, and there's both. And it's not to say that way was bad or this way is better. It's just, they're both ways. They're both ways that we see in the book. And so Nehemiah goes with his army, and we see the king's protection with him. And, and here, I want you to follow with me. If you haven't got this story yet, this obviously speaks of a bigger story. We, too, have the king's protection. We, too, have been sent by the king. We, too, have the king's provision. If you don't see that this story, and, and when you compare and contrast it, it is so much greater. So here's what I mean by that. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, it says this way, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you, and he will protect you from the evil one. I want us to see something really important. If you contrast the king and the throne of Nehemiah's king, Vardaxerxes, with the king of kings, with God's throne, there is a throne in a sense. There is a king on the throne. And one, he comes before, like very timid. And the king does grant him permission, and he does send him, and he does provide for him, and he does give him protection. But we're told with our king in Hebrews 4 to come boldly into his throne room of grace, that we may obtain mercy and help in time of need. And here's what I love about our king. Um, this king noticed Nehemiah's frustration and fears and sadness. He noticed that. But our king sees our heart and knows before we ever communicate it. 
before we ever make a request known, God, God knows and is highly aware. When I see this king, I just reminded of a greater king. When I see the king who says, I'm sending you out and you have my authority and blessing. And I'm sending you with everything you need. And I'm going to protect you along the journey. And I go, man, I have such a greater king who does the same thing and more. Who says, go into all the world and make disciples. You have my permission, you have my authority. You have the authority to go. What are you waiting for? There's not another form of authority where we need. Go, make disciples. In Matthew 10, when he sent them out two by two, he goes, God's going to meet your needs. Go to the house. If they don't provide your need, God's going to meet your need. Go. You have my provision. Philippians 4, as we talked about a few weeks ago, my God shall supply all your need according to Christ Jesus. And then we see the king's protection. We see in 2 Thessalonians 3, we see Jesus say it over and over again, do not fear, I'm with you. Do not fear, I'm with you. And here's the thing. This king reminds me of a greater king. Guys, you have been sent. You've not been sent to rebuild Jerusalem, but to bring God's kingdom to earth. This reminds me of the fact that Nehemiah, please don't miss this, Nehemiah is seeking to build Jerusalem, but if you read Revelation 21, there will be a new Jerusalem. This Jerusalem that the people loved and longed for is only a shadow of the true Jerusalem where Jesus will rule and reign from. Will there be a new heavens, a new earth? We'll see this descend, this new Jerusalem. You can read the ending of how it descend, how we'll be in the presence of God, how all of those things were shadow of just the true kingdom of God. And here's the thing, we're told right now to continue to build the kingdom until the t- kingdom comes. We're saying, we're told to go out, make disciples, build the kingdom, seek first the kingdom, do this until Jesus comes again and brings in the kingdom and ushers in the kingdom. We get to be part of this. We, we're building something better than Jerusalem because it was destroyed and destroyed and destroyed <laughs> and it's destroyed. You just see the history of it. We will build a kingdom that will last. We will build a kingdom that it will not rust, it will not rot, it will not fade away. Where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where Jesus says, you'll have a treasure in heaven that will never fade away. You're building something that no enemy can tear down. And so we get to be a part of something I think that's way, way more exciting, way, way more exhilarating. And I would say, do you want to be a part? God's going to do it. Because God is going to build his kingdom. God, I so believe, is going to reach people in these neighborhoods here, our next door neighbors where we live. God is going to feed people, clothe people. God's going to do that. And he's saying, hey, join me in this. Join me in this work. By no means do you lose your reward. Join me in the work of building God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Church, I love for us as we walk through this, all of these little micro stories are pointing to a bigger story of redemption. The redemption of Jesus Christ by him paying for our sin on the cross, by him rising again from the grave three days later. And he now ascended to the right hand of the Father and he goes, I send you, I give you the Holy Spirit, do not fear, go. And we get to build the kingdom of God on earth. And here we are 2,000 years later. The church has been doing this for the past couple thousand years and it's still gonna continue. And really the question is again, do you wanna be a part of this? Do you wanna join? I pray you do. I, I hope this is something that excites you and says, I get to be a part of something God's going to do. I, w- I get to be a part of it. I not have to, but I get to be. I pray that God would stir our hearts in this way. Amen? We're going to pray. We're just going to close with some worship. And I'm going to ask this, because I don't want to end a sermon and like, you forget it. During worship, will you pr- please be praying about your part in this? What does your part look like in this? Whether it's here, locally, our church, whether it's through our church to our community, outward, what does this look like? I would just ask that you pray, God, show me. You've sent me. You provided for me. You're protecting me. Lord, make my, my role in this story very clear. Will you please, please pray over that during worship? All right, let's pray and we'll worship. Again, Father, um, we are just humbled to be here, to seek you, to worship you, to sing to you, to praise you. 
God, we thank you that you've rescued us. We thank you, God. We were the ones in ruin. (laughs) We were the ones falling apart, and you came to rescue us. And thank you that we went from being rescued to now helping rescue. God, I just do ask that you would speak and move. That, God, those who are in this room, and they're just kind of maybe okay with the American flow of Christianity, God, that you disturb that, that you disrupt that. That, God, we would be moved to just be active in this. God, that we would pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done, and that we'd act in that way, that we live that out, that we would truly seek first the kingdom. So God, we invite you here. <laughs> Make your will clear. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you that you have given us permission. We thank you that you have sent us. So we just worship you now. We thank you now in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's worship.